Welcome to the 1991 NBA Draft. This week on the Sport Blokes. This week, we look back on the 1991 NBA Draft with the benefit of hindsight. It's a much deeper draft class than 1990, so a few surprises. And we talk about the crazy story of Brian Williams, a.k.a. Bison Daly. How many undrafteds will get picked? Let's go. So, here we are again. After doing the 1990 NBA redraft in episode 110, we're going to do the 1991 one today. 1-1. 1-1 one, was a racehorse. How are you, Stewie? We're remote again. You've been a bit under the weather. Yeah, 2-2 two, two was 1-2, by the way. 1-1, 1-1 race. And 2-2, two, 1-1-2. Two, one, one, two. Yeah, a little bit under the weather at the moment. Unfortunately, I've uh, had a pretty nasty cough that's just lingered for a little bit longer than we would have liked. But yes, remote again. Apologies if there is any sort of a lag. It is the the WA way, unfortunately. But uh, we'll do the best we can. We certainly will. And no Amir coffee this draft because that's a bit early for him. But uh, yeah, hopefully yes. you won't be too Amir coffee today. I'll see what I can do. So a bit of a tale of the tape, I guess, uh, before we get stuck in. So unfortunately... The whole draft isn't on YouTube this time, so we won't we won't do the silly David Stern stuff with the picks and everything. Maybe we'll do that again for 1992 when we get there. But a tale of the tape, a couple of quick little interesting facts here and there. So 1991 was the last time in 10 years it was held in New York before it moved back to Madison Square Garden in 2001. Even though the whole thing wasn't on YouTube, I did watch what I could. Host Bob Neal got Luke Longley's name wrong. There's Luke Longley. Luke Longley out of Australia. He was joined by Doug Collins, and this time Hubie Brown, who I must say was a huge upgrade on the previous year's Rick Barry. Craig Sager told everyone that a fan poll said that the local Charlotte newspaper wanted the Hornets to select Dikembe Mutombo, or more accurately, the fans polled wanted the Hornets to select Dikembe Mutombo. We'll soon see if we pick him first. There were more All-Stars in the 1990 NBA draft, which we did in episode 110, as I said, one-timers. We'll, we'll talk about that as it comes up. There were five different countries represented. So aside from the USA, obviously, we had Australia, Canada, Colombia, Croatia, and Zaire. Six countries that would make it. Sorry, five other than the US. And there was a strong NBL connection. So before you get into the rules again, Kevin Brooks went at pick 18 to the Milwaukee Bucks. He played 126 games in the NBA with the Denver Nuggets, but in the NBL, he played 158 games over five seasons where he averaged 18 points, 6.4 rebounds, and 1.7 assists. Probably most notably, he won rings in Adelaide in 1998 and 1999. He then played for the Sydney Kings briefly in 2001, but then he moved back to the 36ers where he was an assistant coach in 05 and 2013 to 2020. And then he was also an assistant coach with the Hawks in 06. He was seen on the Tassie bench, if I'm not mistaken, in the NBL finals as well. Mm, he's been around. So we got to see him more in the, in the NBL than we did in the NBA, didn't we, Stewie? And, and, we uh, did absolutely a fan favorite and i must admit i didn't realize he played that many games in the nba yeah i mean look he wasn't a star but he, he certainly played a few games had that really high arcing jump shot that sort of almost seemed to come from behind his head and i still remember my favorite highlight of his there was a game for the the kings i think it might have been against melbourne where he's come down the lane super slow motion and gone behind the back and dunked on someone and just yeah, tore the roof off the kingdom or wherever it was back then i, I can't remember where sydney were playing in, in the early 2000s and, and he was really a, a bit of a slow-mo kind of guy, wasn't he? He did kind of lull guys into uh, <laughs> into into sleep and then he'd blow by them or, as you say, rise up with that high-arcing shot. It obviously teamed up with Daniel Mee on that or those great Adelaide teams. A couple of other guys as well. 
Rodney Munro went at pick 30 to the Atlanta Hawks via Sacramento. Now, in the NBA, he had a pretty average career, 3.4 points, just under a rebound, just under an assist in 38 games. Much better in the NBL, though. 24.3 points, 6.4 boards and 4.3 assists with 1.5 steals as well in one season for the Canberra Cannons. He played on the uh, team with John Stiltzer, Fred Herzog, Justin Withers. I've got to say, he was actually one of my favourite players for that one season he played with the Cannons. Do you remember him much? I do, yeah. I, I mean, this is actually quite a good draft for for one and done NBL players, funnily enough, and I know you'll get to the next one in a minute. But Yes, I will, look, yes. It's probably not the height of my NBL watching, but I, I certainly remember him being very, very difficult to stop. I just remember him just being a flat-out scorer, just being quite smooth. And one of the strong memories, it's a bit of a weird one, but was from the NBL All-Star game that season as well, which might have been one of the last years for the All-Star game before a long hiatus. But I remember Andrew Vlahov getting his name wrong and calling him Modney Runro. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't know the if you remember. Spoonerism. The old I think spoonerism. it was Andrew Vlahov. Yeah. <laughs> Modney Runro. That is awesome. Now, no doubt the player you were alluding to before, Shui, when you were talking about other guys, was Doug Overton. He went at number 40 to Detroit via Seattle. In the NBA, he averaged 4.5 points per game, 1.3 boards, and 2.1 assists in 499 NBA games. So he had quite a good career in the NBA in the in the end. Eight teams across 16 seasons. Yeah, it's, uh, I actually don't remember him being in the league for anywhere near as long as that. Obviously, as I mentioned before, one of the absolute all-time best one-and-dones in the NBL just... Yeah, absolutely unstoppable. Another one of these these really high-octane Americans that just come in and blitzed us as it was back in the 1990s. I mean, yeah, you couldn't stay in front of him. You couldn't give him any room. Like, pff, you're on an island, basically. And I'll give you those NBL stats. So for Illawarra, he averaged 24.3 points, five rebounds and 6.2 assists with one and a half steals as well in that one season, 26 games. So it's no wonder that he was a very brief visitor to our country before going over yeah. to the NBA. In, in his NBA career, the, the one highlight that sticks out to me was a massive dunk he did when he played for Philadelphia. And I think it might have even been on one of the uh, fellow draftees here. I think it might have been on Dikembe. And he got done for a taunting technical. <laughs> that one sticks in oh, my no. mind. Oh, no. Did he give him the finger <laughs> wag, did he? <laughs> no, no, no. Doug got done because he, he dunked on him. Doug got no, done. No, I'm saying did, he, did he give him a, uh, saying, did he give Matombo the finger oh, wag? Oh, no. He just he just kind of stared at his face, like got in his oh, face a little right. bit. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I can't, I can't, don't quote me. It might not have been Matombo. I can't remember. It was a big guy, but I can't remember who it was. I, no doubt Robbie or Woody, if they listen to this, will, will rem remember and can correct me. And then finally, our last NBL connection was Joey Wright. So he went at 50 to the Phoenix Suns. He was drafted in the NBA, but he never actually played a game. He played for the Geelong Supercats in 95-96. And he was also, of course, three-time coach of the year in 2004, 2007, and 2017. That 07 team with Brisbane was, wow, it was stacked. So they were champions. They featured Sam McKinnon, Ebi Arar, CJ Bruton, now coach of Adelaide, of course, Mark Bradkey, Stephen Black, Adam Gibson, Cam Trigar. And what I forgot, Stewie, even Chris Golding played on that team. Do you remember that? There's very few teams that Golding hasn't played for, funnily enough, when you look back at it. But yeah, I actually don't remember him being on that team at all. Yeah, so there's another ring. I completely forgot. I remember it being in a, just an amazing series, five-game series, just fantastic. But I don't remember that. So they actually went 28-5 and five that season, including a 21-game winning streak. They swept Sydney, which featured Jason Smith, Wertho, Dave Barlow, Kendall, etc., in the semis, and then beat Melbourne, as I say, who had Anstey, Dave Thomas, Rashad Tucker, DMAC, Axel Dench, Stiffy, Daryl Streets, Corletto, Tommy Greer, of course, uh, now with the Phoenix. 
So, and it wasn't five. It actually, it was a five game series, but they won that one, three, one. So any excuse to bring the Wildcats into it. He also coached the 36ers to a losing grand final against the Wildcats. And of course, the new Wildcats coach is John Rilly, who happened to be player of the week for the Crocs in week one of that season. There you go. They always got to find a way to bring the Wildcats in, don't we? Oh, yes, of course, of course. Anyway, this isn't an NBL episode. It is an NBA episode. Before we get into the draft picks, you'll uh, run us through the rules once again. Yeah, just a real quick reminder of these ones. We've got two rules. We keep it very, very simple. Rule number one, we do not look at the needs of the team drafting at that point in time. So, for example, the number one pick belongs to Charlotte in this draft. They might have needed a power forward. They might not have. But we'll look at it and say not so much who they need, but who is the best player available. And rule number two, we'll only be drafting to a level that we see fit. So, for example, today it feels like around 13s may be the right way to go. There are some stack drafts like 2003 where we'll probably push more towards 15. So really, that's the simple long and short of it. We will only draft players that were drafted in rounds one and two that had a career in the association, which obviously if we're only going to 13, we're not going to get to guys that never played. But we will also potentially look at notable undrafted players. There may or may not be one in this one. There may even be two. There are a couple of notable undrafteds here. Okay. Well, there may not as well. But yeah, I, I don't know what your list is. <laughs> True. Now, now, we don't have David Stern for the whole draft, as I said. So I'll just run through the order as it was, and then we'll do our picks. So number one, Larry Johnson. Number two, Kenny Anderson. Number three, Billy Owens. Number four, Dikembe Mutombo. Number five, Steve Smith. Number six, Doug Smith. Number seven, Luke Longley. Number eight, Mark Macon. Number nine, Stacey Augman. Number 10, then Brian Williams. Now, or well, after that, Bison Daly. Now, may he rest in peace. 11, Terrell Brandon, 12, Greg Anthony, and 13, Dale Davis, after his brother from another mother, Antonio, was drafted the year before. And stashed away in Europe for several years. Indeed. So, Shui, I drafted first in the last one, so I think that means you're on the clock, mate. Well, I think this one's actually quite simple straight off the bat. The number one pick will be Dikembe Mutombo, Polondo Macumba, Jean-Jack Wamatombo. <laughs> Very good. I did think a little bit about Larry Johnson, but for me, this one, it just comes down to longevity. He is one of the two or three best defensive players of our generation. If you look at the guys that have played a game at an age older than Matombo's last game, Vince Carter, Robert Parrish, Kevin Willis, and Nat Hickey of the old Providence Steamrollers. So not a, a huge list. And that's also assuming that his birth certificate was accurate, which for a lot of players coming out of Africa, there's no guarantee. Uh, if you look at the all-time blocks, Hakeem Olajuwon's the only player with more blocks than Dikembe. So an eight-time All-Star, four-time Defensive Player of the Year, three-time All-NBA, so a second team and two-thirds. He had 22 rebounds as a 40-year-old, for God's sake. So <laughs> the guy, he was quality, absolute quality. Or um, Hall of Famer, Stewie. Yeah, true, true. And a, and a very well-justified Hall of Famer when you look at what he did over his, well, how many years was he in the league? 18, I think it was, or 19? 19 seasons it was, Chewy, 1,196 games. So 9.8 points per game, 10.3 rebounds per game, and nearly three blocks per game. That's impressive when you consider how few minutes he played in some of those last seasons. I mean, when you talk about defensive prowess, I think for most of us, the mind will go back to that 1994 series against Seattle. 31 blocks in five games to go with 12.6 points and 12.2 boards. But he changed so many more shots than that 31. I mean, he probably changed another 20, 25. He was the only guy that was really sort of able to hold down that center. Sean Kemp went at him, but you know, even then he was changing Kemp shots as well. 
And he only had 17 fouls in that whole series as well. So he was blocking and changing all those shots without actually fouling that that often, which is, I think, just as impressive when you consider how many guys were going at him. And what a lot of people forget is that, if I'm not mistaken, they nearly upset Utah the round after that. They took them to seven, I think. They did. They pushed them really, really far there. And that was a, another very, very decent Utah team. Obviously, Malone and Stockton probably slightly towards the back end of their prime, but still young enough. They were a very good team. And obviously they got to the finals several years later as well. So yeah, that was a, a really, really fun team to watch that Nuggets team. And they were pretty good the following year too. So he averaged four and a half blocks in 95, 96. The playoff stats, 101 games, 9.1 points, 9.5 rebounds, 2.5 blocks per game in his playoff career as well. But how's this? Nearly six blocks per game in his rookie season. Granted, it was 12 games, but 12 games is a decent sample. So 5.8 blocks per game in the playoffs in his rookie season. Wow. Yeah, it's absolutely nuts. I think the thing with Matombo was that he was never really that absolute top-tier center. So if you look at some of the guys that were around him, Hakeem Olajuwon, David Robinson, Patrick Ewing, Shaquille O'Neal, even Alonzo Mourning ahead of him. But he was always around that top five center for a very, very long time. You never had to feed him in the post. He just basically would do all the dirty work and didn't complain about it. The mind immediately goes back to that 2001 final series against the Lakers when he was with Philly. And you know, Shaq was at the peak of his powers. He had 33 points, 16 rebounds, and three and a half blocks a game. He was so dominant. But if you look at how Dikembe played him, I mean, any other center would have probably given up an extra 10 or 15 points a game to him. Like Shaq was just so dominant then. And Dikembe kept taking hits. He kept taking elbows and he just kept coming back. He, he was a, a huge part of, the, the, I guess, the reason that Philly played. I mean, it looked like a 4-1 series is kind of a blowout. But when you consider the fact that they were in so many of those games. Well, they won game the one. Team, well, they did. They won yeah. game one in L.A., they were in several other games as well. I think there was a big corner three from Robert Ori, shock horror, in hmm. one of the games. Yeah, they were relying on big plays down the stretch. And it's largely down to the fact that Dikembe's effort on the defensive end was just so impressive. It was the second option on offense as well, nearly 17 points a game. So, yeah, look, as soon as you put him on the bench and Matt Geiger and Todd McCulloch came into the game, it did. It looked like Shaq would go for 50. So I think he absolutely has to go number one. And have you ever heard a story about Larry Johnson walking into a party yelling out, who wants to sex Johnson? <laughs> I was wondering where you're going with that. I'm like, we're not up to pick two yet. No, yes. Yeah, so famously, Takembi would turn up to parties and go, who wants to sex Matumbo? <laughs> and I if ever there was a player to be cast for the Cookie Monster in a uh, in a TV movie, Takembi would be the one. Absolutely. So, yeah, I think a, a very, very deserving number one for Takembi Matumbo. And by the way, he was no spring chicken on that Philly team either. As you say, the the age is a bit kind of, they don't know exactly. He came into the league at 25 is what the official record says, but he may have even been older than that. So he was probably quite old in that series against Prime Shaq. Mm. Yeah, he did well. So, Nath, plenty of talent still left on the board. Who are you taking with your second pick? Well, Stewie, how can I go past Von McDade? Absolute superstar. Of course. <laughs> what a steal at number two. <laughs> and there you were thinking I was going to take Lamont Struthers. Well, I mean, it would have been a pretty obvious second choice, but I, I don't mind the curveball. 
wonder if that's real, any relation to Sally Struthers. Anyway, no, of course, Larry Grandmama Johnson absolutely has to be the number two pick. As you say, was nearly the number one pick, and he was the number one pick in real life, but the Hall of Fame and the Defensive Player of the Year stuff got Dikembe over the line. I would have taken Dikembe 1-2, but Larry is definitely a standout number two pick for me. 16.2 points per game, 7.5 rebounds per game, three assists per game too. Was a pretty good foul shooter when he got there. Played 10 seasons. In the playoffs, was decent as well. So 14.2 points, 5.3 rebounds in 66 games. He had 20 points per game, 6.5 rebounds per game, 3.2 assists in 13 playoff games for Charlotte. And definitely his Charlotte years were the best. So 19, 9, and 4 in five years with the Hornets. And his net value was worth at least $83 million, even though that those back injuries and stuff did kind of shorten his career a little bit. And it really was kind of a tale of two halves of his career, wasn't it, Shui? The first half I'm of his so, career- so, so glad you said that because that's exactly <laughs> what I've got written here. Well, the first half of his career was well and truly above the rim. Lots of flashy dunks and, and taking it to the rack and dunking on people. And then the second half of his career with the New York Knicks was more as kind of a, almost a stretch four in many ways, but a, a jump shooting and more of a finesse player. Yeah, that's exactly what I've got here as well. Like five years dominant above the rim with Charlotte, very crafty with the Knicks. And it's so funny that you say that because, yeah, the whole notion for me about him going down to number two was just purely because there was no longevity down to the back problems. And I actually didn't realize how early they started. They actually started in 1993. So he missed a bunch of games there with, with that sort of lingering back issue and that's sort of when I guess he started to develop more into a, a jump shooter or not even a jump shooter is really more of a set shot. But I, I think going right back to even further though, there was a lot of talk that he actually was the sort of guy who should have actually come straight out of high school. A lot of people think he would have been taken first in 1989 if he declared for the draft. And when you look at Purvis Ellison and Danny Ferry as the first two picks in that draft, he probably would have been picked first, but Very, very dominant for those UNLV teams as well. Nearly 22 and 11 before he got drafted. But I think the big issue was just between him and Alonzo Mourning, they were quite immature when they came in. Very hyperactive, very bullet a gate sort of guys, I guess. And he was always yelling at people, always wanting to (laughs) lift more weights than everyone. And it wasn't until he left Charlotte really that he did mature a little bit. And there was still a lot of tension with Alonzo Mourning and, you know, both of those guys were traded in within, I think, about 12 months. And Alonzo went to Miami for Glenn Rice and Matt Geiger and then Anthony Mason and Brad Lowhouse for LJ. So, yeah, a few run-ins over the, the years as well in the playoffs. But, yeah, it was uh, he, he definitely calmed down a little bit when he went to New York. Now, when we were on the Throwback Hoops show with Woody and Robbie the other week, though, uh, Robbie was talking about the Knuckleheads podcast. And I, I listened to the episode where they had Larry on, and I learned some really interesting things. So, one of them was he actually pitched himself to UNLV. They didn't recruit him. He said, I want to come play for you, which is really interesting. Obviously, won a national championship with Greg Anthony and Stacey Augman, who both appear in this draft. Now, whether they'll appear in our lottery remains to be seen. But the, the other thing I learned from that, and, and obviously the other big thing with Larry Johnson was Larry Grandmama and those ads. So he was telling a story that when he signed on with Reebok, they had this idea for these grandma ads and he really didn't want to do them. And basically the carrot that they held over his head to say, look, we'll do some normal kind of run-of-the-mill basketball ads later, but we really think this is a great angle. Please do it. And he went, okay. So he reluctantly did it. And then he never got his normal ads 
the grandmama oh, ones. No. They were so popular that they just wanted to keep churning them out. So he never really got but I think it adds to his legacy and I think it added to his popularity. Charlotte were huge here in Australia in those early 90s. They're almost as big as the Bulls, weren't they? They rivaled them. There was Charlotte, Orlando, and Chicago were really that the, was three, the three. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then, of course, we've got to, you can't talk about Larry Johnson without talking about the four point play. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the four point play? Because I personally think it was a terrible call. I think he shot the ball about a year after the whistle went. But what are your thoughts? Yeah. So I guess contextually, I think, was it game three or four against the it Indiana Pacers? Three. Yeah, yeah, in the 1990, conference finals. Yeah, yeah. And of course, they ended up losing to my Spurs, but they were undermanned. No Patrick Ewing, of course, who got injured in that series against Indiana. I watched that footage so many times. So at the time, I remember being absolutely outraged and thinking there's no way that's a four-point play. Either it's a foul on the floor or it's no foul in a three. And I watched that footage so many times recently, as well as some of the grandmama ads, which were piss funny. But oh, I'll tell you what, it's actually a little closer than I remember I suspect that the continuation was a little bit generous, but it was, I must confess, it, it was a little closer than I remember. Yeah. I feel like the ball was still on its way back up to his hand when the foul was committed. But anyway. Yeah, that's look, right. I my gut says that it was was generous. Yeah. Now it's so interesting as well that you did mention the whole injury to Patrick Ewing in that series. And talking about the final series against San Antonio, which to be honest, was actually kind of sad to watch. I mean, you looked at I guess the the twin towers of Tim Duncan and David Robinson, who were just unbelievable in that series. And then you had Larry Johnson kind of going up against Duncan offensively. He averaged less than eight and five. He was 28.6% from the field, 11% from three. Like, yes, he's giving up a few inches to Duncan, but he couldn't power through Timmy. He couldn't get up the way that he used to. So he wasn't able to jump over the top of him. And that's one of the real interesting what-ifs. You know, if Patrick Ewing could have played, him and Marcus Camby playing against Duncan and Robinson, Johnson moves to the three and maybe has his way a bit against Sean Elliott. So that could have been a very, very different final series yeah. instead of... Mm. Yeah, Pat was near well, the oh, end. Look, Pat was near the he, end. He was, but it's the size and the ability, the fact that he can pull a David Robinson away from the, the rim a little bit with being able to shoot from 15 feet. I just think that series, I'm not saying that the Spurs would have necessarily lost it, but I just think that would have been a much, yeah, it would have been much more fun to watch and it wouldn't have just basically been give the ball to Latrell Sprewell and hope that he can do something. Well, Camby played pretty well. Alan Houston was a decent player on that team too. I think that Miami team that season was the best one, but of course the Knicks, or in the East, but of course the Knicks upset them. So the Knicks were the ones that made the finals. Yeah, from the eight seed. All right, Stewie, you're on the clock. Pick three. So this is where it first gets a little bit tough for me. I think there are three guys you can make a case for at three. And for me, it's between Steve Smith, Terrell Brandon, and Kenny Anderson. And I don't know if there's a right way or a wrong way to draft these three, but I'm actually going to take Steve Smith with a third pick. And the reason I'm going to do that is just purely when you look at the other two guys in Brandon and Anderson, I guess a little bit undersized compared to Smitty. You know, Smitty at six foot eight as a shooting guard was always just that little bit bigger, a little bit stronger than everyone. Kind of had that advantage over defenders pretty much every night. Had probably one of the most iconic moves of the 90s, the Smitty, which is still to this day one of the best hesitation moves I've seen. Hmm. It seemed like he got to the rack at will with that thing. But I think for me, 
yeah, just he was a little bit more consistent than the other two, turned into an absolutely outrageous three-point shooter at the end of his career, reached 47% in the 0-1-0-2 season with San Antonio, one of only three players to make seven threes in a quarter. So, yeah, just a, a, a really all-round quality player right the way up until, I guess, right at the end. And, you know, had some really nice stints as well when you look at the times with Miami, the times with Atlanta, that really stacked Atlanta team with Blaylock, Matombo, Leitner, and Ogman just never seems to really be able to put it together in the playoffs. And then he joins the the Bale Razors as well. They were even more stacked. You know, Rasheed Wallace, Damon Stoudemire, Arvita Sabonis, Detlef Schrempf, Brian Grant, Scotty Pippen. That team was insane. And Bale I think the, the only, the, yeah, well, the jail blazers, whatever you want to call them. But, Bale uh, Razors you know, is good. I forgot about that one. Yeah, it's the yeah. jail blazers that I normally, yeah. The only thing that stood in the way of them winning a championship was Dick Bavetta, Hugh Evans, and Steve Jabby, really. Mm, yes, well, we won't go there. Not today, no. anyway. I don't know. What, what were your thoughts on Steve Smith? Well, it's interesting you say that. So I had a clear top four, and Steve Smith was my clear third pick, and my fourth pick will come very soon because I'm on the board for four. I had him at three because I think the size, the range – Excellent shooter, as you say. To add to that stat you gave before, in the 0203 season where he won a ring with the Spurs off the bench, he shot 97% from the line. Yep. But in 942 games, he averaged 14.3 points, 3.2 rebounds, 3.2 assists. And then in the playoffs, he actually upped that a little bit to nearly 15 points. And okay, nearly one less assist, but he definitely was a big game player and I was a massive fan of his. So when he did sign on for the Spurs, albeit late in his career, I was absolutely stoked. When he was drafted, he left the University of New Mexico as the Lobos' all-time leader in points, boards and blocks. And he ended up playing 14 seasons with six different teams in the NBA. That ring, I think, is enough to get him into the third pick. Yeah, a perfect compliment to Duncan and Robinson in that series as well. And one of the things you you hit on there, which I think is absolutely perfect, is the fact that he raised his game in the playoffs. Just always a guy you could count on. And yeah, I, I think he's, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy with him at number three. I loved watching him play. And he's actually a very good commentator too. I enjoy watching him as a talking head. Agreed. Well, Nathan, you've said you've got a pretty clear fourth pick. I'm interested to see you're on the clock. For me, it's Terrell Brandon. I know he played less seasons than Kenny Anderson, who you kind of mentioned and who was my fifth pick. But the fact that he was a two-time All-Star, the fact that he had some really good production in his peak. So he played 12 seasons, 724 games, 13.8 points per game, three rebounds per game, 6.1 assists per game. His, his production did actually drop in the playoffs a little bit. So a bit less flashy than some, but a real workhorse and a, a real reliable guy, I feel like. 87% career free throw shooter, 98.8% in his final season with Minnesota. <laughs> and his final season numbers were really good too, which is also why I put him above Kenny. So even though he did only play those 12 seasons, in that 12th season, he averaged 12.4 points per game, 2.9 rebounds and 8.3 assists. So he was really good right to the end. Yeah, agree entirely. I, I had him at four as well. A little bit more reliable than Anderson, a little bit steadier, just yeah, a bit more consistent. Never an outstanding shooter, but solid enough. Slightly better defender than Anderson for me as well. And I think he got a little bit more out of his teammates. So I think that's why I had him at four as well. But you know, if you look at some of the earlier days, you know, he's backing up Mark Price in Cleveland. But once he got that starting role, as you said, he averaged 12.4 in his last season. He never averaged below that for the rest of his career. Those Minnesota teams in the late 90s, early 2000s with Kevin Garnett and not really a whole lot else, they probably overachieved. 
And when you look at the guys, you know, the Malik Sealys and the Anthony Peelers and the, the young Wally Zerbiaks of the world, he made them better players and dragged that team to 250-win seasons, which in that West at that time, when you consider all of the amazing teams, you know, the, the Lakers, the Spurs, the Jazz, the Sonics were really good back then. The Phoenix teams were pretty good as well. So to get 50 Dallas wins in that coming. conference, Houston. Dallas would have been pretty decent. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. To, to be able to do that, I think, yeah, you're right. He probably dragged a little bit more out of, I guess, what he had than, than Anderson did. And yeah, I agree with you entirely. Sacramento were bloody good too. So yeah, you're right. It was a very stacked conference at that time. And it was a stacked conference for a long time there, wasn't it? Mm. It was. Who you got at five, mate? Well, yeah, look, we continue on the same path and Kenny Anderson has to be number five. I mean, one of the sickest handles the league had seen at that stage, brought a little bit of the playground to the NBA, hitting guys with these filthy crossovers and spin moves. One of the quickest guys in the league downhill as well. And from 92 to 97, consistently one of the best point guards in the league. But when you look at some of the other guys in there, John Stockton, Tim Hardaway, Gary Payton, Mark Christ, Kevin Johnson, he was just a little bit overshadowed by them. And I think a lot of people maybe forget how good Kenny was probably for those first five or six years while he was in the league. The other thing to remember, I guess, is that when he was dominant was when he was under Chuck Daly, who has a history of being one of the greatest coaches of all time, rest in peace, Chuck, Indeed. and someone who dealt really well with top-level point guards. I mean, he had a, an amazing relationship with Isaiah Thomas with those Pistons teams. and So he was someone who got the best out of point guards. And as soon as, I guess, he left the first season with Butch Beard, it kind of went all downhill from there. And, you know, look, he was solid, but he bounced around. Eight teams in his last nine years, refused to play in Toronto in 97-98, which kind of stained his reputation. And after 2000, just wasn't the same player, didn't have the same speed, just wasn't really able to be that effective and trailed off really badly. Whereas, you know, as you mentioned with Brandon, he was consistent right the way through to the end of his career, whereas Anderson wasn't. Anderson was patchy. He actually had some really good years in Portland through 96 to 98, but he also had a really good year in New Orleans in 0203 as well. So it was, he did have some decent years at the end, but it was patchy. 12.6 points, 3.1 rebounds, 6.1 assists, 1.5 steals, 858 games, all said and done, nearly 20 seasons, pretty good career. And I will say this, he had a really, really big dark passenger with him for a long time. And it's something that not many people know about, that after he retired, he went through a really rough time, lost his mom to a heart attack, filed for bankruptcy, both within a very short period of time. And after that, it kind of came out that he was molested as a child. And he was so thankful that he had such a, a great support network through basketball and through his fame and was very quick to point out that so many others didn't have that. And so many people, you know, instead of being able to play basketball like he did, would have hung themselves or shot themselves or whatever for something like that happening. So, you know, he, he counts himself as very, very lucky, even though he went through something horrific that you wouldn't wish upon your worst enemy. Funnily enough, Lonnie Walker has been really open about facing abuse as a child as well. So it's very brave to do that in the public eye. So Absolutely. Yeah, I, didn't, I didn't actually know that. There you go. Now mm, it was a, a really interesting documentary about him on YouTube that I managed to get my hands on last night and had a bit of a, a listen to. And he's very, very frank about his struggles and, and how he, I guess, maybe made some bad decisions, but also why he made them. So 
he doesn't shy away from them, which is, I think, the very mature and right way to do it. We all make mistakes, but it's great of him to be able to deal with his dark passenger and be able to to do so well. And he's now mentoring a lot of young kids and dealing with, I guess, underprivileged youth and things like that. So he's, he's a, a really top quality human being. And what a smile too, hey? I, whenever I think oh, of Kenny Anderson, I just think of that, that grin. <laughs> so, so stylish. Yeah, had that, had that look about him, didn't he? And loved in the city of New York and, and the state indeed. And, and obviously started his career in Jersey and the crowd did like it when he was selected. So Nath, we're at the number six pick now. This is where things, I guess, start to head downhill slightly. I'm, I'm Who have you got? Oh yeah. So not only does it head downhill a little bit, now there's a peloton. There is a peloton of players. It's really hard to select between. And there's really, like seven of them, hey? Yeah. It, it really at this point is kind of down to personal preference but also down to what do you value? So, oh man, this might come as a bit of a surprise because there are all-stars and and other people below, but I think I'm going to go with Brian Williams, Bison Daly. He won a ring with with Chicago in 96, 97. I know it's really tough. All All the stats are really similar, aren't they? I just, I couldn't bring myself to quite to go for Chris Gatling here. Bobby Fills, Billy Owens. Eh, eh, eh. Look, with no conviction, I'll say Brian Williams. 413 games, so a little bit less than some of those guys. 11 points, 6.2 boards, 1.1 assists. As I say, though, did win a ring, but yeah. Oh, had some decent years in Detroit, but yeah. I yeah, I might, I might regret this within five minutes, but that's who I have at this point, I think. No, no. Look, it's interesting. And I think you're right, though. There is a very, very solid list of probably about six or seven guys that you can make a case for. Look, I had Williams all the way down at number 10, but that doesn't mean that he was a bad player. Which is where he was picked, funnily enough. It it was. And, And look, there is so much to talk about with Brian Williams. So I guess we'll maybe tell a little bit of the story now. And going back to when he was playing, he was probably the first clinically diagnosed NBA player with depression attempted suicide at least once, battled all sorts of issues with the Detroit Pistons management. That was actually why he walked away at the end of a, well, it was a seven-year, $50 million contract, and he still had five years and $36 million on it. Just walked away, said, I'm absolutely done with basketball. And, it, I, and he was yeah. basically at his peak then, which is kind of partly why I, I picked him, because he was bloody good at that point for Detroit. I, I remember having him on a fantasy team, actually. Yeah, and as you say, then it all kind of went pear-shaped. Well, I, well, just quickly before we get to the pear shape thing, it, it is interesting that you sort of yeah mentioned that he was at the peak of his career, I guess. In 97, 98 with Detroit, he averaged 16 and 9. Those numbers were better than Rick Smith's numbers, and he made the All-Star game that year. So you could argue that Williams probably deserved to be on that All-Star team. And okay, yes, a lot of the credit went to Grant Hill that season for the Pistons being as good as they were, but... You know, he was a very, very crucial part of that Bulls title in 96, 97. And, and as I, you said, very, very good with that Detroit team. And uh, yeah, it just, unfortunately, there were a lot of things that were kind of hanging over him. There was one thing I heard about when he was on the, one of the Bulls private jets and at 30,000 feet, he was actually trying to open the emergency hatch. Yikes. So really, if he'd managed to get that open, that entire Bulls team probably would have been wiped out, which is wow. very, very scary. Yeah. Um, Rumoured to have dated Madonna as well after his retirement, which is probably one of um, how many guys has Madonna dated, really? 
<laughs> well, Dennis Rodman's the only other NBA player I can think of off the top of my head, but I'd say she's dated a few over the years. A few, yeah. Well, I mean, she's what is she? What is she now? One hundred and ten? Like she's she's been around a while. But uh, no, look, let's let's get to this story. It is absolutely crazy, and I must admit, I actually learned a few little bits and pieces about this story that I didn't know about. So, and there's still uh, some speculation that- as well here, isn't there? There's still some kind of unclear details with this one. And there are details that we will probably never, ever, ever find out about. Yeah, really. So yeah. the so the whole thing with Williams was, uh, and I should say, I should refer to him as Bison Daly because he had changed his name by then. But yes. and that was actually going back. He had uh, he had Cherokee roots, so that was him honouring his Cherokee uh, roots there, which is pretty cool. Oh, okay. But once he left the NBA, he turned into a not so much a nomad, but somebody who was really interested in travel, wanted to see the world. He spent more than $3 million on a a boat. And the plan was he was basically going to get on this boat in Tahiti and head across to Hawaii. He was taking his girlfriend, Serena Carlin, the skipper who was Bertrand Saldo and his brother, Miles DeBoard, who was born Kevin Williams. But three days into the trip, they lose all communication with the boat. 15 days after the voyage begins, Miles was seen actually bringing the boat back into a dock in Tahiti alone. He'd actually changed the name on the boat. There was apparently bullet holes that had been patched up. So it looked a a pretty dodgy sort of effort there. And then a few months later, Miles was spotted in Phoenix using Bison's passport and checkbook to try and purchase half a million dollars in gold. Mm. Eventually settled with this guy for 152,000, gave him the check. The financial advisor for Bison Daly spotted that the address and the phone number on this check were slightly different to Daly's usual details. He calls the phone number on the check and it goes through to this voicemail stating that the, the guy's name was B. That was all it was. And so he calls the police, says, look, we need to stop this charge. We need to arrest the person who's trying to basically cash this check because it's bullshit. DeBoard was arrested, attempting to complete the transaction, but they released him because no one really knew that Daley was missing at the time. And he basically said, well, I'm just doing something that, that Bison asked me to do. I'm just basically dropping off a check and picking up something that he's authorized me to do. And since they didn't really know much about Daylay being missing, they just kind of dropped it. And, and eventually it was discovered that the three had gone missing and then Miles kind of realized the whole world was was sort of closing in around him. And so he's fled to Arizona. He's told his girlfriend that he and Daylay got into a fight. Serena Carlin stepped in, but she got hit in the head accidentally, struck her head on the side of the boat and died at the scene. He's then claimed that Soldo has sort of said, oh, we need to report this to the police. Bison Daly has just panicked and shot him. And then Miles shot Bison in self-defense. Miles then claims he threw all three of the bodies overboard, weighed them down. He knew how it looked. He told his mum he was going to kill himself. And then he's overdosed in Tijuana, Mexico. Yeah, then he and, did. And the result of that is that the true story will never be told mm. because the likelihood of finding those three bodies in the middle of the Pacific Ocean somewhere is just, I mean, it's slim to nil. It's a huge haven for sharks out there. So the likelihood that there's even a morsel of any of the three bodies there is next to nothing. Oh, so yeah. It's a, no, definitely. Yeah. It's, a, it's a real strange story. It's a real sad story. A guy who, yeah, unfortunately was just going through a lot of stuff and just wanted to enjoy, the, I guess, the fruits of his labor for the rest of his life. And that's it. And I dare say, unfortunately, not the only deceased person that we'll be picking very soon. Who you got at seven, mate? Yeah, well, I had originally picked Dale Davis at number six. And look, again, there's a number of guys you can make a very, very good case for, guys that maybe had better numbers than him. 
but I've picked him just purely because of the fact that he is a guy that would fit into pretty much any team. Really good lunch pail guy from the 90s. Um, do you know his first name is Elliot? I can't say that I did. Yeah, there you go. But no, as I say, definitely not the best stats on any of the teams that he played for, but one of those real eye test guys, a real double-double threat, averaged pretty much 10 and 9 throughout his prime and 8 and 8 for his entire career. He made an all-star team in 2000 during that real confusing period where guys like Jamal McGlure and Thea Ratliff were making it. <laughs> but it seemed like yeah, every time he was involved in a trade, he made teams better. He gets traded to Portland for Jermaine O'Neal. He gets traded to Golden State for Nick Van Exel. He was traded to New Orleans for Baron Davis. So those three guys basically made the teams that they went to even better than they were. Not straight so, up, yeah. surely. Not straight up for uh, packaged but he was the main part of that trade yeah yeah right i forget that okay which is insane so yeah there were there were three different times he was traded he made teams better just as i say like there's not a whole heap you can say about him but he was just one of those really good lunch pal guys you wanted in your corner because he would go into battle he would put his body on the line he would set really hard screens he would get after guys and just put everything into rebounding didn't need plays to be run for him. He was happy to just be a lob threat or be, you know, an offensive rebound threat. But I, yeah, I think he's the sort of guy that I would want on my team. And that's why I've picked him ahead of some of these other guys. Fair enough too. The only thing I really have to add is that he had the second most games played of the entire draft class with 1,094. So the longevity is a big deal too. Yeah, not actually not that far behind Matombo, pretty much one season. Which is, uh, which is interesting. Yep. Um, he's actually also been involved in training K Soto recently, which I thought was was very interesting. Ah, there you go. Great tidbit there. Didn't know that one. That's good. Yeah. So hopefully that'll help his NBA aspirations as he moves forward. Indeed. So number eight, Nath, you're on the clock. Who have you got? Oh, man. It, it does not get any easier. Those players bunched up. I literally could pick five different guys here. Oh man, do you know what? I'm going to I'm going to go for based on just pure personal preference. So I'm going to go with our first undrafted player, Daryl Armstrong. Oh, wow. So it's again, it's basically a lot of numbers are very similar around this part and and I'm basically picking him because I liked him a lot and I liked him more than the other guys that you probably have ahead of him. So he played 840 games, 9.2 points per game, 2.7 rebounds, 4 assists. 51 playoff games, 6.8 points per game, 2.3 rebounds, 2.5 assists. So, okay. He didn't actually play his first season until 94, 95, but he did play 15 seasons when he got there. was always one of those. I guess he's the sort of player that I like. Again, not too flashy, although he could throw it down when he wanted to, but reliable, good, solid veteran, good guy to have on your team. And in 51 playoff games with the Magic, he averaged 12 points, 3.8 rebounds and 4.2 assists with 1.5 steals. So pretty good in the playoffs with the Magic. Okay, interesting. I actually had him at number 12. So again, that shows you just how bunched up this group of players was. But yeah, look, a, a great player. Unfortunately, probably best known for one of the worst dunk comp performances ever in 1996, which he punctuated with a reverse layup as time expired. <laughs> but yeah, really handy player, dominated in the CBA and the Cypress National League before he got his gig with Orlando. But you're right, his late 90s were really impressive. He won six man of the year and most improved player in 98-99, the first and only time I believe that a player has won both of those in the same year. Really, really solid the following year as well. 16.6 assists, two steals a game for the season there as well. 
So yeah, he was a, a very good energy guy, really dogged defender, kind of gave everyone the business when he was when he was on him, always looking for other guys, just a really good teammate as well. So yeah, I, I must admit, I did actually have a note here that you could take him higher. Uh, so yeah, me getting him at 12, I, I don't have a problem with you taking him where you've taken him. And unfortunately, I guess the, the big thing for him was that in 2003, he got charged with resisting arrest and he never played for the Magic again. And unfortunately, two solid seasons with the Hornets and that was it really. And I've got to correct myself there. I said 51 playoff games with the Magic. He played 51 playoff games all up, but those stats I read were in 24 playoff games with the Magic. Who you got at nine, mate? Well, I'm not sure if you've got this guy anywhere near as high on your list, but I've gone with Rick Fox. No, the championship pedigree was definitely factored in. So so I, I had him kind of around here too. Yep. I actually did have him picked at number seven, but we've had to kind of move the order around a little bit, which is fine. Purely, I am picking him so highly because of the intangibles. You know, an elite post passer, really great teammate, top quality defender, never really had the accolades. But if you go back to his time with Boston, he was one of these guys who had real offensive talent, averaged 15 points a game in 96, 97. But it wasn't really until he got to LA that he became that real missing link sort of guy. And one of many that the Lakers did have, obviously with Robert Ory and Derek Fisher and Devin George, guys like that. But Fox was super duper important to that team. And I think without him and a couple of those other guys, it's a lot harder for the Lakers to win that that series well all of those series really. three pay, yeah he if was you look part at, of the first three pay, yeah he was and if you look at some of these other guys that have been successful as that you know, Ron Harper with the Bulls Lamar Odom with those later Lakers teams Draymond Green to a lesser extent as well they kind of get the accolades as being a champion player but they don't maybe have the same stat levels so yeah I, I sort of looked at that and said he was such an important part of those Lakers teams and uh, I, I figure that he deserves to be drafted as high as he was. And it, it's not even possible that the off-court stuff really ruins it. I mean, you deduct points for briefly dating Khloe Kardashian, but, uh, <laughs> it, you know, but he, he had some pretty decent films. He was in He Got Game. He was in Blue Chips, Eddie. Uh, he was on The Big Bang Theory, Ugly Yeah, he's Betty, been in countless Oz. TV shows. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So he's done very well for himself. So, yeah, I, I'm pretty happy with him. Well, at pick nine, as it turns out, but I would have taken him at seven. And nearly 10 points per game, four rebounds per game, and three assists per game in nearly 1,000 games. So he played 930 games. As I said, played in that three-peat, was a part of the two glamour franchises, the Lakers and the Celtics. Pretty damn good career. Yeah, and punched Doug Christie in the face, so good for him. <laughs> All right, Nath, 10th pick is on the board. Who you got? Oh, man, it's tough. Do you know what? Screw it. I'm still going to go with guys I liked because it is such a bunch. I'm going to go with Stacey Augman, the plastic man. I knew it. I knew as soon as you said guys I liked, I'm like, he's taking the plastic man. I know it. I was a massive fan of his, obviously started his career at the Atlanta Hawks. I, I listened to a podcast today, the Cuddy and Cuge podcast, which sounds a bit rude, but it's not that rude. Hmm. He was actually three-time defensive player of the year in college for UNLV and a part of that championship team, as we mentioned. Funnily enough, his nickname was Ice in college, but he became the plastic man in the NBA. Mm, didn't know that. He went back to become an assistant coach at UNLV, and he also coached in South Korea. But as far as his NBA career is concerned, 16 seasons, five really good ones before he fell off a bit of a cliff. 1,001 games, eight points per game, three rebounds per game, 1.6 assists per game. So the stats are starting to dip a little bit. And his playoff stats were a bit lower as well, but he did play in 77 playoff games. But geez, so athletic, 
really good defender coming out of college and, and indeed in the draft coverage, they actually talk about him as kind of almost a Dennis Rodman potential, but he didn't get there, of course. But yeah, really enjoyed those early seasons, really enjoyed playing with him in the video games as well. Had to pick him. I actually had him more of like an, a pre-Josh Smith, Josh Smith, basically, in terms of real elastic looking around the rim, lots of high-flying dunks. Never really an amazing shooter, though. So, yeah, I kind of – I actually had him at nine first, and then I moved him down to 10, and then I actually dropped him down to 11 as I kind of moved Bison Dele and a couple of other guys above him. So, yeah, look, I think you're right. Like, great first five years, but then after 1996, he never averaged more than six points a game. And for a guy like him who didn't really take a lot of threes, he never shot more than 48% from the field, which is not – that impressive so yeah i just i don't know he just kind of felt like an odd man out on those atlanta teams you know the ones that had mookie blaylock dominic wilkins kevin willis even danny manning that last oh, year as well and love those just teams. was ne- yeah was just never able to be more than a fourth option on those teams so I, I don't know maybe he's one of these guys where had he been on a slightly worse team earlier in his career he might have been a little bit more impressive but yeah, I think for me, the reason I dropped him so far was just it was the the sheer drop-off at the end of the career or after he left Atlanta. Oh, look, he probably didn't have the 10th best career, but like I say, my criteria at this point now is to just pick guys that <laughs> I loved because it's really hard. The stats are really even now. I guess the game played is, is a bit of a differentiator now, and there's no more championship winners kind of in this lottery range, but... Yeah, big fan. You wonder if maybe he fell into the doghouse in Portland, which is maybe why his Portland days weren't as good as they could have been. But yeah, big fan and and yeah, had to go with him at 10. They were so stacked anyway. I mean, he was at a hiding to nothing there, really. So we're getting to the point here now, Stewie. Pick 11. Who you got? Pointy is very true because this guy had a very pointy head. Uh, Chris <laughs> Gatling. I knew exactly who you were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he had a, um, a metal plate inside his head. So, uh, yeah, I've gone with him. He was actually originally my number eight pick. So our orders after number five basically have been all over the place, which is good. So it's what we want for this sort of discussion. But Well, and yeah, let's, think- let's face it, Stewie, if we did this again in a week's time, we, we might have different minds anyway. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's possible. It is very possible. Uh, look, for me, I went with Gatling. His prime was slightly better than a few of the guys I had after him. If you look at that absolute peak year in Dallas in 96-97, he ends up an all-star, 19 points, eight rebounds a game, just a flat-out scorer. One of these guys who had a really reliable hook shot, good finisher around the rim, just an all-round scorer, as I said. like could, could shoot pretty well in the mid-range, but just was an absolute beast inside. Bit of a black hole on offense, unfortunately. Never even <laughs> averaged one, not one assist a game no. in his career once. 0.7 for his career, 0.5 in the playoffs. There you go. Yeah. But but no, look, he knew what he could do. He knew he was a, a good shooter and just a, a really good productive big guy. Yeah, to be honest, mate, that's partly why I hadn't selected him yet. The fact that he was a little bit one-dimensional, 5.3 career rebounds per game. Yeah, it's a little bit low for a power forward, I feel. Or even, yeah, he was really a power forward, wasn't he? So yeah. 700 games, 15 seasons with eight teams. The three-year peak was 18 and eight, basically. So it was a very good peak, but yeah, the, the maybe didn't rebound enough. And as you say, never shared the ball at all. Yeah. And, and that's the reason I had guys like Rick Fox and Dale Davis ahead of him because of the fact that they were just better teammates and better 
just all-round fit guys, I guess. So, yeah, productive big guy for Gatling. Could shoot the ball really well in terms of always being a, a high scorer. But, yeah, you you kind of look at him as a chemistry guy and say, mm, is he going to have good chemistry? Uh, I don't think so, no. All right, Nath, we are down to number 12. We're approaching the last pick. Who have you got? Yeah, it does get tough here, Stewie. It really does. So there's probably three different guys I could go with here. And if right. games who, played... Who are you thinking? Well, you thinking? if games played was the criterion, you kind of have to go with Billy Owens here, who was pick three. But I think... And the other two are Bobby Fields and Robert Pack. I think I want to go for Robert Pack. Again, a little bit based off players I liked, maybe a little bit more was undrafted as well, which is kind of cool. So I've managed to sneak a second undrafted player into our top 13, which is maybe also a little bit why I've done it. Played 552 games. The best years, of course, were with the Denver Nuggets. He did, he actually played for seven teams, which is more than I remember across 14 seasons. Very good defender. Averaged at least one and a half steals in five seasons between 94 to 98 with those Denver teams. Nearly nine points a game two rebounds, nearly five assists per game. The production dropped a little bit in the playoffs across 33 games, but very handy player on some pretty decent Nuggets teams. And as I say, the intangibles, the fact that he wasn't drafted, maybe a little bit why I put him in here too. Now, this is the second guy that you've spoken about that had a nickname involving the word ice as well. True. So that was, I guess, part of the reason that I didn't pick Robert Pack at all was just the fact that, he missed so many games because of injury. Yeah, that's always fair. referred. To, yeah, just referred to as ice pack. But you're right. Like there is that uh, almost like a Cinderella sort of feel to the fact that yeah, he didn't get drafted, got some really really big minutes. I always remember him just tearing down the middle of the court against Seattle and throwing one down over the top of Sean Camp. And, oh yeah, yeah. He, he he caught a lot of guys. There were a lot of guys that kind of almost forgot that he could jump so high. And, yeah, he uh, he embarrassed a lot of players, that is for sure. Those Nuggets teams, man, that was so exciting. Yeah, I don't think we appreciated them at the time, unfortunately. And I look back on it now and think, geez, I, I wish I'd known a little bit more about the game. Because, I mean, this is like, what, 93, 94? I mean, we were 10, Year 11 years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So, unfortunately, yeah, just before I really, really got into it. But, yeah, fun, fun, fun times. One more pick to go, Shuey. Is it one of the two guys I mentioned? Or it is. Okay, there's still a handful no. of other guys that could have been. No, nah, no surprise for me. I've gone with Billy Owens. I actually had him at number nine. Um, this was one of these guys, and another one, a big sort of what if, came out of high school and college being compared to Magic Johnson, had this amazing vision and dribbling ability. He was six foot eight, so he had the size that Magic had as well. But it was an attitude thing for him. He gets drafted by Sacramento. And look, I get it. If I was drafted by Sacramento, I would secretly be pissed. Like you had any other team in the league and you draft me to bloody Sacramento. But he basically held out on them until they traded him to Golden State. And they traded him for Mitch Richmond. Holy shit. Yep. Like Mitch is a guy that averaged 22, 24 points a game for Golden State. And Owens was more around the 14 and a half to 16 and a half. Look, his numbers were solid all-rookie first team, but just didn't provide the same impact, didn't play defense at a high enough level, didn't rebound at a high enough level for a guy that they pretty much traded away a third of one of the the greatest trios of the sort of the early 90s, I guess. And look, he gets traded to Miami for Roni Cycle. Then he gets traded back to Sacramento and bounced around the league until he retired in 2001. So another one of these guys who was really solid for five years, maybe okay for two and then meh for three. 
That's the great irony is that the, he, he ended up in Sacramento anyway, even though he yep. didn't want to play for the man of college. With the benefit of hindsight, yes, that was a very, very lopsided trade and, and maybe one of the more lopsided trades in history. And of course, this whole episode and these exercises are with the benefit of hindsight. But when you consider what he did in college and the kind of pedigree as well, his brother Mike actually played for the Kansas City Chiefs. So very good athletic pedigree in the family, very good college player, actually played four positions. Many people thought he could play five. Had an NBA career of 600 games, 11.7 points, 6.7 rebounds, 2.8 assists. So yeah, you kind of had to squeeze him in the lottery, didn't you? Even though he was a bit of a disappointment, those are still pretty decent numbers. Oh, they are. Absolutely. Look, he was a solid player. Just unfortunately, another one of these guys that maybe didn't have the right attitude to I guess, be a key piece on a contending team later in his career. Just, yeah, if you look, you go back to the Kenny Anderson, not wanting to be in Toronto. You've got him not wanting to be in Sacramento. So there's there's guys that just didn't have that right attitude coming out of college, which is a shame. So there we have it. Let's go through the list. Dikembe Mutombo, Larry Johnson, Steve Smith, Terrell Brandon, Kenny Anderson, Brian Williams or Bison Daly, Dale Davis, Daryl Armstrong, Rick Fox, Stacey Augman, Chris Gatling, Robert Pack and Billy Owens. A couple of other honourable mentions that very easily could have snuck in to basically anywhere from six down for most of these blokes. Bobby Fills, may he rest in peace. 467 games, 11 points, three boards, nearly three assists. Played nine seasons. He actually was my number 13 pick, funnily enough. I actually had him instead of Robert Pack. Ah, there you go. But just quickly, Nate, the reason I did, it just... A huge what if. One of the best defenders in the league. Michael Jordan once said that he was the toughest defender that he ever faced. All defensive second team in 1996. Six straight seasons of double figure points, 1.3 steals a game. Really handy three-point shooter, nearly 40% from his career. And just, yeah, a valuable member of that really tough Charlotte team that sort of had Eddie Jones, Derek Coleman, Anthony Mason, those sorts of guys. Baron Davis early on, Eldon Campbell, and uh, David Wesley, who I guess we'll talk about now. Yeah, well, yeah. So unfortunately, Bobby passed away because he was in a high-speed car accident involving David Wesley as well. Yeah, not good. Not good. I think they said that they lost control around 100 miles an hour and multi-car crash. He was pronounced dead at the scene at just 30, right in the middle of his prime. You know, you look at it and say, well, if he played another four or five seasons at similar levels, we might have been drafting him at six or seven. Oh, almost certainly. Almost certainly. And and I think you're right. Underrated player, a guy that I forgot how good he was defensively, actually. I, I didn't know about that Michael Jordan story. That's crazy. Mm. Yeah. Like Elliot Perry also in this draft class, he played three seasons, then had a year in France, then had a year in Turkey, and then spent the rest of his 10 seasons in the NBA across eight teams. So weird. Yeah. Drafted 45th as well. So another one of these guys that really rose up in terms like, didn't really have a huge pedigree coming out of college, but rose up very, very quickly once he got into the league. And I guess while I'm on these honourable mentions, I've already mentioned him. So Elliot Perry, look, he's not the best of the guys remaining, but in 549 games, 6.3 points, one and a half rebounds, three assists, played three years, then had a season in the CBA and then played the rest of his 13 seasons. Known for the long socks, any backup point guard, old Elliot? Yeah, just a guy who would go out there and get buckets. And as you mentioned, probably one of the best accessories outside of maybe Kurt Rambis's glasses or uh, <laughs> Horace Grant's Horace Grant slash goggles. Kevin Willis yeah. slash many other guys, uh, the goggles. Yeah. So yeah, the stocks were phenomenal. Or Ron Artest's elbow. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I hope James Harden's not listening. 
Uh, who else have we got? So Eric Murdoch, 508 games, 10 points per game, more than I remembered. Two and a half rebounds, nearly five assists. Eric Murdoch had a pretty damn good career, didn't he, as a backup? He did, yeah. I remember him quite fondly for those early 90s Milwaukee Bucks teams. Really that crazy shot. Well. Do you remember that crazy oh, shot? Yeah. <laughs> the oh, the round, round is sort of almost round his back over his shoulder yeah. while his pants were falling down. Yeah, that was yeah. nuts. Oh, man. One of the great uh, highlights in NBA history. Yeah. He's one of these guys that really, I mean, if, yeah, if you look at his peak season, that 15.3, 6.7, 2.4 steals, he was a guy who easily could have been close to top five in this draft, but just got so many injuries over the course of his career. Lee Mabry took a ton of his minutes and he played his last six seasons with six different teams. And three of those seasons were 15 games or less. So really just the longevity cost him. Yeah. Fell off a cliff. Like a lot of the, the players do. Yep. Isaac Austin. I really loved him as a kid was so pissed off when Miami traded him for Brent Barry. Cause I thought he was a key piece on that Miami team. Miami was kind of my East team. The Spurs were always my number one and by a head and shoulders, but I did like that Miami team with Tim Hardaway and Alonzo Mourning. Isaac Austin was very handy on that team. Anyway, 432 games, seven and a half points, four and a half rebounds, one assist. I mean, he was a big guy. And in the playoffs, similar numbers. So he was a handy big man. Yeah, 97, most improved player. Had that three-year stretch in the late 90s where he was legitimately scary in the post. Real big body, ran the floor well. But unfortunately, yeah, just sort of tailed off pretty badly at the end. He's actually Isaiah Austin's uncle, if people don't remember him. He's one of those guys who was a serious NBA prospect and he got diagnosed with Marfan syndrome, which is this multi-systemic genetic disorder and it leads to complications with the heart. I still remember when Adam Silver made him an honorary pick in the 2014 draft, which was a really special moment. It was a really nice touch. Was that 2014? Wow, that doesn't yeah. feel that long ago. I know. Eight Holy years shit. ago. Holy shit. Yeah. Isaac was picked at 48. So to have those career numbers at pick 48 is pretty good production. And that's why I mentioned him ahead of this guy. So he was picked at number 12, the third player out at UNLV from this draft, the Runnin' Rebels. Greg Anthony, 757 games, 7.3 points per game, two rebounds, four assists. Played 17 seasons, so a good career across four teams. Maybe didn't live up to his potential. His son is better than him already, I think, Cole at Orlando. Oh, yeah. And obviously Absolutely. he was a commentator as well, but he would rag on the Spurs at every chance possible. So there was no fucking way I was going to select him. Is that the reason that you laugh at him for getting in trouble for soliciting a hooker in 2015? Uh, I forget that actually, but I just remember him always ragging on the Spurs. And so I, I'm i just, yeah, screw him. Yeah, well, there you go. I think he was one of the first Vancouver Grizzly players as well. Did you know he played almost his entire junior season at UNLV with a broken jaw? Wow, I know I did not know that. Mm, he was a tough dude. And you kind of have to be a tough guy to play I don't know how many seasons he played in New York, but to be a Nick for that long at that time as well, when you're talking about those teams with you know, the Oakleys, the Masons, the Ewings, the Starks, all of those guys, you have to be a really gritty sort of player. And Greg Anthony was just that. Four seasons in New York, Stewie. So about a quarter of his career. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, he's a pretty handy player though. And then of course, last but not least, Lucian James Luke Longley. Ah, Luke. Yeah, there was unfortunately no room for him in the lottery in this time around. He was on the short list, but yeah, it didn't make our selections. 567 games, 7.2 points per game, five rebounds, one and a half assists. Very good passing big man. 11 seasons, won three championships with the Bulls, obviously, it has to be said. 
Look, I've got to say, I never appreciated him enough as a kid. He he was actually a very handy player, very good defender, very hard to move off the block. And yeah, as I say, I think that maybe Aussies don't actually give him the respect he deserves because they remember those years with all the injuries. And this is the the problem. It's the injuries. People remember him going up against Sean Kemp in the final series against Seattle. He ended up having to sometimes play against Carl Malone and just getting absolutely abused by those shorter, quicker guys. So it's easy to sort of focus on that stuff and remember him as maybe being maybe not quite as agile as he was, but you're right. I mean, he was the perfect center for that triangle offense. was able to sort of spot guys maybe before they were open, but yeah, just a really, really useful player on those Bulls teams and yeah, not too bad as well in some of the other teams, you know, the Phoenixes and, and the likes as well. Just again, unfortunately kind of had his career cut short with injuries and yeah, just never really played again after I think it was New York that he was with funnily enough. Of course was owner of the Wildcats for a little while there. Uh, Freo boy, Freo hippie. And and maybe he didn't have that killer instinct, which was maybe what kind of let him down a little bit. So one of the early, in one of his first interviews when he went to the University of New Mexico, he accidentally, or he kind of said that he was a bit lazy and the, the media kind of ran with it a little bit. So it was probably a regrettable comment to make on an interesting documentary called Lofty Ambitions. Now, funnily enough, I remember watching this down in Bustleton on holidays on GWN. The doco is on YouTube. I would encourage people to watch it because it's also got some really great footage from a young Mark Bradkey, young Andrew Vlahov, really good Australian basketball documentary. He was pretty athletic. He was lean, exceptional passer. So watching that old footage helps me appreciate that he was a better player than what I remember. And as I say, maybe it was some of his personality traits that maybe kind of made people think that he didn't have that killer instinct. And and look, maybe he didn't. Well. He's won three more championships than we have. Well, that's right. And and nonetheless, one of the great Australian basketballers of all time. Great guy, obviously now working with the Sydney Kings. Just phenomenal career, really, in spite of some of the issues. And look, he did have an inauspicious start in, in Minnesota, which was a shame. But I can understand why they picked him where, where they did, because his college highlights are pretty impressive. I suppose for me, a couple of the other guys of note, LeBradford Smith, pick 19, he was a guy out of Louisville who kind of should have had a really solid career. Like how many guys drop 37 on MJ and then play less than 200 games? That story is so weird. <laughs> Obviously mm. covered in the last dance. Yeah. Like he's probably the only guy who's ever done that. So yeah, it, it, an incredible player. And for some reason just couldn't stick in the NBA. I don't know why. Now, next, we kind of joked about this guy in the last episode, 35th pick Mike Uzzolino. Now, I originally asked myself, was there any more random inclusion on the NBA Jam roster than Uzzolino? This is a guy that played a, played 122 games total. But then I looked at the 11 and 71 Dallas team and realized that outside of Derek Harper and Jim Jackson, they kind of had nothing. So maybe Ouch. he was the only option they had. Were they 11 and 71? My goodness. Yep. Yikes. At the time, the second worst ever record in the NBA behind that 9 and 73 Philly team. So yeah, not pretty. And I've got to say, that's partly why I had Gatling a little bit lower, because although he did produce for those Dallas teams, they were pretty crap back then. There is one guy I want to talk about, but I'll come back to him last because his story is quite interesting. Just going back to Joey Wright as well, you mentioned him being picked 50th overall. So you know how obviously we had Tim Hardaway, Mitch Richmond, and Chris Mullen as run TMC? Well, Joey Wright, Lance Blanks, and Travis Mays were known as the BMW scoring machine. Ah, how gross is that as a nickname? 
Travis Mays. So he was in the last draft and on the coverage, they kept wondering when he was going to get picked and he kept falling and well, for good reason in the end, because he didn't have a very good career in the NBA. Absolutely. Absolutely. We also had Zahn Tabak, who we also joked about as being a potential number one pick. One of my favorite names growing up, actually the first foreign player to play in the finals for two different teams. He played with the Houston Rockets and the Indiana Pacers. And funnily enough, went up against two different teams led by Shaquille O'Neal in the Orlando Magic and LA Lakers. There you go. Yeah, the Croatian. Yep. Also coached the Slovakian national team from 2019 until 2021. So he's uh, he got into the coaching. But the the guy that I actually wanted to talk about quickly was the 46th pick, which is Richard Dumas. Uh, One of the yes. really interesting, yeah, such an interesting guy in this draft. Yeah. So he got suspended in his first season in the league for substance abuse, played the entire 1992-93 season, was awesome, real high flyer, looked like the sort of guy who could take the Suns to the next level. Then he lost the following season for a second offense, played 54 more games for Phoenix and Philly across two seasons, and then he was out of the league. Weird story. Yeah, yeah, no, like... I remember him. I can I can distinctly remember Billy Woods talking about him on Sunday Basketball. He was a fun guy to watch. I mean, like stupid ups. Maybe not the most fundamentally sound player, but he was one of these really good energy guys. And I know we sort of talked about the whole Cedric Sabalos thing on the 1990 redraft and how he was maybe a better defensive matchup for a guy like Scottie Pippen. But Dumas looked really good. You know, he, he wasn't quite there, but he, you know, for a guy that was playing in what his second season. He did pretty well. Who knows? Maybe they beat that Bulls team, as you say. Yeah, absolutely. But looking at Dumas' story, it actually goes way, way, way back. And I found this really interesting interview with Vlad TV. And he said that his uncle used to give him a beer at age five. He was smoking cigarettes from an early age. He got into weed at 12. That's not so unusual. A lot of people get into weed around 12, 13. But but then at 18, one of his so-called friends laced one of his joints with crack. And that's massively escalated all of his drug issues. He basically would consume a six pack of beer before most of his games. So he pretty much never played a game sober. Uh, It got to the point where when he ended up playing overseas after he was out of the league, they didn't have any of that sort of stuff. So he would be constantly, constantly knocking back six packs before every single game and getting away with it. And, I think one of the things that I found most interesting was something I didn't know about. In 1993, he was nearly traded to Detroit for Dennis Rodman. And if the Pistons hadn't actually found out that he was in drug rehab, they very well could have traded him. And all of a sudden, that Charles Barkley-led Phoenix team has Dennis Rodman on it as well. And what a butterfly effect moment that is. Yeah, the domino effects from that are crazy. Yeah, he never would have gone to the Spurs. Crazy. Well, never would have gone to the Spurs, probably never would have gone to the Bulls. And Charles Barkley probably hangs around in Phoenix for a little bit longer. And that Phoenix team, I mean, you you look at that team, that's going to be a very hard team to beat. Oh, yeah. Bloody oath. Now, just quickly to round things out, we've spoken about Bobby Fills. We've spoken about the Brian Williams slash Bison Daly story. A couple of other RIPs to a couple of guys who were drafted but never played a game. Alvaro Tehran picked 44th. Didn't the play Colombian. a single game. The Colombian, exactly, yep. Passed away in 2020 after suffering from kidney failure. And Keith Hughes picked 47. Also never suited up, but passed away at age 45. No cause listed. I tried very, very hard to figure out what happened to him. But obviously, that's not important in the scheme of things. It's obviously sad that he's passed away. So four guys from that draft class no longer with us. But um, yeah, I have to have to say, a slightly stronger draft class than the previous one. Oh, definitely. Unquestionably. Yeah, I'm probably underselling that, aren't I? 
Not sure you know what that music means. Final thoughts time. Well, a really interesting redraft, and I have to say, I was expecting a couple of differences between our lists, but I was not expecting it to be quite as far apart as it was. Obviously, some fascinating stories, and thankfully not as many of those sort of crazy ones as the, the previous draft, but the story of Brian Williams and, and Bison Daly, I guess you'd probably refer to him more as, was uh, it's a really sad one and one that disappointing will never be solved. Well, and that Richard Dumas one you just mentioned too. Yeah, lots of interesting picks. It was always hard from pick six. Until next time, I'm Nate. And I'm Stu. We are the Sport Blokes.